health is about more than just staying fit. And with every year that goes by, I'm becoming more and more fascinated by how what we eat can impact our health and our potential, with a particular focus on gut health and the gut microbiome. It's not just what I eat either, it's how I eat too. It's all connected. That's why I've developed my own number one living drinks brand. Number One Living is based on this idea, the simple notion that by putting our well-being first and improving the quality of what we put into our bodies, we get more out of life. My range of kombucha drinks are full of bacterial life cultures, designed for a happy and healthy gut. They're sugar-free, vegan and naturally sourced, so you can feel great on the inside and enjoy life on the outside. Choose from refreshing raspberry, passion fruit or our award-winning ginger and turmeric kombucha. The number one living range is widely available in Sainsbury's, Holland and Barrett's and Boots stores and online at numberoneliving.com. Grab yours today. Okay, on with the show. Hey, welcome back to I Am, the podcast that explores the possibilities and potential that we can access as human beings. I'm your host, Johnny Wilkinson. This week's guest is Amanda Scott Amanda definitely has a really powerful and exciting vision for the future and a very interesting take also on how it's all going to come to life. Her methods for connecting to our potential and realizing our dreams, they make things really clear and quite simple. She's got a great way with her words. All of this made for a lovely chat. and I think it's a really good one. I think it's going to resonate with lots and lots of people. It's definitely uh, worth tuning in for and, and one that's had a huge impact upon me. Just to let you know that I always release an episode early in the week, a few days before the main guest interview becomes available. And in this sort of 10 to 20 minute slot, I attempt to set the scene for the upcoming conversation and share some of my own ideas and thoughts as well. I can get pretty intense about this sort of stuff, so I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I can go off on one. But I'm also very keen to use this opportunity to incorporate some responses to any questions I receive as well. I'm really enjoying hearing from anyone listening in, so if something arises in you, thoughts, feelings, or anything that you feel you want to know more about, do not hesitate to email me on hello at iampodcast.co.uk or just leave a comment in the review section on Apple Podcasts. Today, though, it's all about the guest and a chance to hear their wisdom, their learnings, passions and stories. And I do love this bit. I love being part of it. I hope you do too. Uh, Thanks again. Uh, My name is Johnny Wilkinson. This is the I Am Podcast with Manda Scott. Manda Scott, thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. It's a real pleasure and I'm really excited to to dig into what's going on in your world, if you're willing to share that. But first of all, just how are you and how's life generally? Thank you. Thank you, Johnny. It's a real honour to be here. So, and I'm happy to dig into whatever we end up digging into. <laughs> and life is, feels a bit turbulent, but it's raining, actually, which feels really critical at the moment because we're trying to regenerate the land. And there's somebody recently said, for all the technology that we have, we owe our existence to six inches of soil and the fact that it rains. And I live on the edge of Wales and it hasn't been raining a lot, but it is today. So anyway, the world is an interesting place. Yeah, I think we're going to get into a load of this stuff and just uh, how humbling that is with all the things going on in your life that are keeping you going and everything that, you know, that kind of desert island conversation of what would you take with you? Mm. And you kind of realise that you're not even scratching the surface. You realise that without so much, there is no you. And we're quite human centric, aren't we, about so much of this, that the world somehow devoted to us and yet we're just a tiny 
offspring, just like everyone else, I guess. Yeah, yes. Total Perspective Vortex. Douglas Adams wrote about it many decades <laughs> ago, probably before your time. But yes, yes, there's so much life. And we are such a tiny fraction. And yet, what else can we do but centre it around us? You know, I guess if we were hedgehogs, we would centre it around hedgehogs. But here we are, centering it around people. <laughs> so, yeah. I'd, I'd love to go into what that sense of being human actually means to you what it is that interests you in life and how you've come to get there. And I wonder if you might just be able to tie that in with this conscious evolution kind of movement. Gosh, yes, thank you. That's a really interesting question. I'm not sure exactly where to start. Let's do a tiny little bit of biography, which is I started off my professional life as a veterinary surgeon and then I became a novelist. But all the way along, from when I was at least nine and probably before, my passion, my, my need, my sense of who I was, arose out of trying to connect to what it, then I would have said were the gods of this land. I, I grew up in a very small Scottish Presbyterian village, and it wasn't me. And I was aching to find ways to connect. And over time, those ways have arisen. I've been incredibly lucky. People have offered, let's say, the toolkit with which to help to connect. And quite recently, so as part of that toolkit is that I sit with the fire quite a lot, and, and particularly the solstices, summer solstice, winter solstice. And so the conscious evolution came as a concept to me, sitting with the fire in the winter solstice of 2018. And I had two visions, which sounds incredibly pretentious, but basically just things arise. And I had no clue what they meant. And the first one was an image of the world as seen from space, that amazing moonshot of the world where we first saw us, this little planet in the midst of space, this beautiful blue-green pearl in the blackness of space. And in the vision, it was crossed with many, many, many millions of fibres, tiny fibres of light. It was night at the time, it was the winter solstice, so they were moonlight coloured. And they were crossing and crossing and crossing. And at every intersection where two fibres or more crossed was what seemed to me in my trying to understand it, a node of consciousness. And some of those were people, and most of them weren't. And the other vision was of me standing up on a stage in the States talking to many, many people, which blew all my fuses because I don't fly anymore and how am I going to get to the States? But anyway, <laughs> let, leave that one aside. It took me a long time. It took me the rest of that year, really, to explore the original vision. That What is it? What I now would retrospectively lay over that is the understanding that we're at the edge of human evolution. We don't know what other species conceive of as consciousness. I, I strongly suspect we're going to find that, that whales, for instance, have a much more complex sense of consciousness than we do and much greater interactivity. But we are human, as you said at the beginning. We center ourselves around us. And I had read somewhere the idea that we have Paleolithic minds and medieval institutions and the technology of gods, and that this is a far from winning combination and it's got us to where we are. But that we have the capacity to evolve beyond this, that conscious evolution is the evolution of our consciousness that we've consciously chosen to take, and that this is possible, that anybody and everybody could do it if it became our priority, if it became the thing that we wanted. And I got quite stuck there because... How, then the question is, okay, so if what I am understanding 
from other people and also from trying to be part of that web of life and connecting to everything else is that this is possible and that more and more increasingly for me, this is what I am here for in this moment, is how do I share this? And then I got to that other vision of me talking to lots of people and the remaining part of that original sit with the fire had been, I've been teaching shamanic work for nearly 20 years. I've got my first group of students all the way around the wheel that I teach. It's a structure that helps us teach and technically it should take 10 years, but actually it had taken 16 years. And of all the hundreds of people who'd started, we'd got nine, had gone all the way around. And I sat with the fire. I was like, yay, go me. I got nine people all the way around the wheel. And what the fire, the gods, the spirits, whatever said was, yeah, nine people in 16 years is really not going to cut it. You need to start teaching this at scale. And I had no idea how. I can't teach the shamanic stuff at scale. It's not safe. I need the one-on-one interactions. But perhaps I could teach the concepts of conscious evolution and how we might do it at scale. And that was then I persuaded my wonderful and long-suffering partner that this was a project that we could both engage in. And that's what we're trying to do. And I had the original idea that we would have tens of millions of people wanting to do this. And actually, we have a rolling few hundred. We have the core who are who started and, and keep going. We have others who come in and it's too hard, too complicated, takes too long and they leave again. So we're trying to look at how can we restructure it so that's not the case. Because I really believe that we have the capacity to be human in ways that we don't understand yet and can't understand yet. But we can step towards the edges of it and ask of the web of life, what is it that you need me to do in this moment? Being who I am, not trying to be something different, to the best of my ability, and then do it without sitting there going, no, I can't do that, it's too complicated, or it won't work, or I don't know where it's going, or all the things that get in the way. So that's a very long-winded, I'm sorry, but that's the best I can do. Not at all, no. It's absolutely uh, perfect for me. I think there's loads of things that are triggering me to to sort of move into. And one for me that comes up is you mentioned that sort of aching to connect. That rings true for me. And it's only really in, I would consider it to be a slightly more boundless way that I am looking for connection, where despite the turbulence, as you mentioned, that passion seems untouchable because that curiosity just views everything within its grasp. It it can't lose its grasp. You can't trump curiosity. You can't trump acceptance. You can't trump awareness. And when that search, if you like, for connection through those kind of boundless vehicles, it seems to have some kind of extra force to it, maybe a momentum that seems really difficult to, to shift. Whereas before I was looking at for in the surface stuff, the achievements, the identity, yeah. the status and, and what have you. That's a really, really big thing. And the other part of it, I think, that's sitting with me straight away is you mentioned conscious evolution. I've sort of seen you speak about it. Maybe evolution as we've seen it before the conscious step mm-hmm. as being almost business as usual that kind of survival idea, you know, what is what does the world look like without this conscious evolution? And how has it got to where we are without this conscious evolution almost, do you think? That's a really interesting question. I would really want to explore, have you any idea what it was that took you across that boundary? Because for me, teaching this, it seems to me there's a kind of falling in love with joyful curiosity, or there's an almost erotic edge to the passion to connect that becomes then the flame that lights our heart and that everything else then 
follows from that? Does that make sense to you? Do you know how that arose? My immediate logic and intellect wants me just to say straight away the deepest challenge, the darkest place, you know, like the darkest moment before the dawn almost. Right, right. But then I don't think it's as simple as that. So, you know, facing those insurmountable crisis moments where you just seem to say to yourself, I have no choice. But even before you have no choice, you still have to make a switch. And for whatever it was, there was something in me that just said, I'm going to go to me first before I go to the outside. And what I've realized is that I'm never going to get to the outside, but I kind of am getting to the outside by going to me. Yes. And it's kind of almost like there's a rubber band stretch moment where it's not quite a snap, but it's definitely not going back to where it was. And I can't convince myself to go back there anymore because it just doesn't hold reality until, you know, maybe not that long ago, I suffered another one of these sort of crises moment periods. And in that intense energy vibration that's obviously still within me and and needed to express itself, in the middle of that, I do go back there. Oh, do you? And And yeah, I can feel I'm there and I can see the sense of it's pulling so hard and I can feel myself going there. And it's almost like my awareness is retrospective. So at the end of the period of going there, I'm able to come out and say, oh, I can see I went there. Mm. And and therefore that lag time of almost like my reaction was lasting longer in that space. And then suddenly my reactivity is lasting less and less and less and less until there's no reactivity almost. And it seems to be more just proactive energy and drive towards, towards something bigger. But I think I see it in that respect now. That's kind of what my awareness is tuned into is like, where's my reactivity? And I think that business as usual, I think is for me through that reactivity. But for me anyway, it was always about flopping onto the sofa at the end of the day and saying, oh, it's been a hard day. Instead of in the middle of the day going, ah, this is interesting. (laughs) I, I still can't give you the answer because it feels like it's a readiness that just wasn't there, but it was there. I think it's in all of us, but it's almost got to find its way to the surface. Yes, yes. And because I'm sure it's in all of us. It feels to me that this is our birthright as human beings. You know, we have 300,000 years of evolution. And if you talk to indigenous people, they are there. It, not all of them, but most of them. And yet somehow our culture has has come in over the top and done its Wendigo thing and almost sucked the life out of them. But until this tiny fraction of time that is our business as usual, we were connected to each other and to the web of life. We were an integral part of everything. And so it seems to me that's still a possibility. And I know you've got a young daughter and my partner has grandchildren and they're born as these little amazing forager hunters. They're, you know, I read somebody the other day, we took a child born now and a child born 50,000 years ago and swapped them over at birth. They would each grow in their culture perfectly fine. I'm not entirely sure that's true, but it feels like an interesting thought experiment. We can do this. It's not that we lack it, but somehow something about our business as usual constrains us and constrains us. And there are clearly people who go into the dark place and never come out. They either die or they just get locked there. So I think my curiosity in talking to you is how can we find the way to help other people to move into something that, because what you said is, yes, we fall down, but it's a curve. It's like a roller coaster. It's not a straight line from here to eternity of the world just becomes straightforward in any way. But I think for me, 
I feel of it as as walking on a knife edge, that we're all walking on a knife edge with a 300,000 foot drop on either side. It's just that we tell ourselves it's a road. And becoming aware that it's a knife edge, then, okay, I can get quite enjoying balancing on the knife edge. And I fall off. But the difference is how long do I fall off for before I realize that I'm falling? Yeah. And then can bring myself back on again. And I think resilience is a bit of a, and in word just now, but for me, sort of spiritual resilience is that capacity to notice and yeah. then come back. Anyway, you asked about where do we go when we're, when we're not heart open, when we're not connected. There's a wonderful man called Alner Lado who told me a story of the Wendigo. Did, do you know that one? No. Is this something? No. Okay, so this is Native America, Turtle Island, I think North and Central, possibly also South. And it's the story that the parents tell the children but it has a, a core truth. And it's the story is that a group of people from the tribe get stuck in the winter and snowed in and they're going to starve. And the few who return back to the tribe are the ones who ate the others. And they, in the process of doing that, they were infected by the Wendigo, the, the spirit that loses empathy. And that it's an infectious thing. If they come back to the tribe and are not very carefully held in a compassionate space that helps them return to the compassion of the tribe, then they will infect the rest of the tribe and the tribe will become a wendigo, a destructive process that doesn't have empathy and is disconnected from the web of life. And this was a a myth all through the Americas until, I don't remember what date Columbus arrived, but whatever time it was in the 15th century. And they look at these people and they are the wendigo. And they don't know what to do because the ones who come into the tribes, they can heal. And Benjamin Franklin wrote some really sharp letters to all of his friends, not understanding. Every time we get somebody and they've they've been kidnapped by the tribes and we take them back or we take the children and we bring them, they do everything in their power to return to the tribes. And why would they? Because we're Christian and white and we have all the stuff and they desperately want to go back to these pagan savages. And when we ask them, they say it's because there is no fear. And I I sit with that quite a lot, that sense of what is it like to live in a community where you don't feel perpetual lack, where there's not this continual zero-sum game of if I have more stuff, you therefore have less stuff, and you're going to try and take it away from me. So I have to somehow create rules or bigger guns or bigger fences, or I have lots of dogs or something to stop you taking the stuff that I've got. And both of us feel terrible because I feel under assault by all the people who don't have stuff. If I'm one of the people who don't have stuff, then I want stuff because otherwise I'm going to starve. And we've created this culture. There's an amazing book, totally recommend everybody reads it, called The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengro. And one is a social anthropologist, the other one is an archaeologist. And this was their 10-year project, talking to each other, exploring the things that both of their specialities didn't really look into. And they started off with the question of how did inequality arise. And they're emailing back and forth and talking. And within a year, they realize this is the wrong question. The question is, how did inequality come to get stuck in this really weird Western Wendigo culture that creates power hierarchies where the people at the top have all the stuff and all the power and everybody else doesn't, when all around the world, for literally hundreds of thousands of years, people established amazing cultures where that didn't happen. 
And it wasn't that it didn't happen by accident. It wasn't that nobody arose who had a bit of an ego or was a bit of a psychopath or wanted a lot of followers and wanted to gather the stuff. It's that they had inbuilt social technologies that made, look at that guy and go, no, really? You're not serious? No, we're not going to do that. Sorry, you want us to worship that bit of stick over there and do everything you tell us? You're completely welcome to do that. But we're going over here and you're basically on your own. So, you know, when you want to come back, we'll welcome you back. They didn't do it. It's not an accident that, say, the Inuit had 5,000 years of a powerfully functional forager-hunter society, mostly hunter, without creating hierarchies. It's that they chose not to. And why did we do it differently? And I've never got to the answer. I I blame the Romans, obviously, because I wrote Boudicca. (laughs) But the Romans didn't make it up. They just brought it over here and spread it very effectively. And I don't know. Why did we do it I have no idea. How do we get back? It's really interesting. With all the talk of, in the spiritual era, about the age we're in, and it's the age of ignorance, it almost feels like this is part of those waves you're talking about, the ups and downs that are heading on that essentially upward curve. But when you get the magnifying glass and go in on the curve, you realise that it's anything but a straight curve. It's ups and downs. And in that sheer magnitude of whatever years and millennia we're talking about here, yeah, those curves are tiny. But to us, obviously, it's huge. But there does feel like there's that momentum where now our societies are built around technologies and infrastructures that that support that concept of the haves and the have-nots. The fear thing is amazing. Obviously, the, the expression that the opposite of love is not hate, it's fear. And I think this is really, really powerful because I know for me that my crisis moments of fear, their insecurity, their sense of lack and its self-worth and it's not belonging and it's all these kind of things, which it seems on an intellectual level, you kind of go, that's interesting. But when it manifests in your life, it's the last thing you think it is. It looks to you to be, no, it's that person over there is really doing this. It's not me. It's this thing. It's not my worth. And I get that. But at the same time, if we want society to be different, surely it requires just uh, the shift that almost herd majority to turn into that fearlessness. But I think there's some major confrontations that need to take place, or at least that we need to face and explore certain ideals that are embedded in our culture and, and historically, I think, of recent history as well, certainly around things like, you know, death and, like you said, the hierarchies and all these kind of things, which seem to almost filter down you know, I know that was a big thing with me. I know I heard you say before as well, if this is embedded in, in our culture, but it's also embedded in us and we can work with what's in us. Very difficult yes. to work with what's in the culture. And I love what you're doing. It's about you doing you and turning your inner society into a herd majority and that being your gift out there. And I think that's really cool. But you mentioned about stuff that's embedded in us, that when you go to that thinking, the thinking is kind of almost infected by it. And it feels like, yeah, I certainly found this. I was a thinker. I tried to work everything out, but I worked it out from the mindset I was already in, which just meant I just dug, I had a spade and I wanted to get to the surface. And I'm kind of like, well, I'm going to use this spade. You're kind of like, but you're just digging. Yeah. You're just digging. That's all you can do. Yeah. 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 And Einstein was, I think it's one of the ones attributed to him, probably not, but no problem is solved from the mindset that created it. Or Andre Lourdes, I think, said, the master's house will not be dismantled with the master's tools. And it's so hard because when we're stuck, our tools are our tools. They're what we got. If we don't have other tools, how are we ever going to change things? So, yeah, I think knowing that it 
the only person I can change is me. And therefore, all of the work that I need to do is how can I find new tools? How can I reach the edges of myself? How can I be more alive? Because I think what I'm hearing from you is we ask these questions of ourselves on the day we realize that we're not really living and that there's something about that realization of life has to be worth more than this. I remember one of these Facebook memes that came through of this beautiful picture of a young woman walking through a forest and it said underneath, because we were not born just to pay bills and then die. Actually, I want that on my wall because we do live in a culture where it is actually easier to imagine the total extinction of all life on earth than it is to imagine doing stuff differently. And yet, I think it's partly is we're not trying. I think now, you know, the whole Threetopia project is, okay, guys, we actually do need really to imagine how it could be different in ways that work because we know all the bad ways. We definitely know, you know, Handmaid's Tale crossed through the road. It's going to be very bad. We can imagine that with no problem. But you've done enough in your work by now to know that we get where we put our attention. And so what happens if we put our attention on the future where we get it right? And... I am discovering that's quite hard because it does require letting go of all the voices inside that go, yes, but, and there are hundreds of those. But if I can find the place where it feels, if I can find that fearless place where I'm sitting in a possibility of flourishing, then I can begin to perhaps find my way towards it. Does that make sense? It makes it, yeah, it makes it sound very to me actually quite simple like you said in a place of flourishing it's the create state you can't help but create the other state is the survival state and that survival state for me has been total where you said put your energy and attention my attention has been purely on my immediate environment it's not on what i can imagine you know because a child i find that that leaning is massively towards what i can imagine and actually i'm not that interested in what a house looks like I'm interested in what I can make stuff look like in my head. But that kind of almost pragmatism that we're trying to find the rules to life and we keep making them up. And therefore my attention purely on what's happened and what's happening now around me, but also in my memory, how I remember things is how they've been implanted. And therefore my memory has been sort of hardened and solidified and and. I guess, carved into this straight path of how I got here. And then for when I try to go abroad future, I can't. I've got that hardened path continuing right through me. That's all I can see. And so when I get imaginative, I'm like, well, I've got nothing. And yet what I found with this journey is that the playfulness and the ability to start, you know, coming up with some mad stuff and you kind of sat there in a room with nothing in it and you start thinking, this would be fun if we did this. You're like, oh, hold on. I'm not used to this. I'm used to sitting here and complaining about how I'm not being entertained and and all this stuff. But you mentioned there about a future or an evolution to our species and to who we are that we can't even imagine. And I think that's so big. I think that's so big because it's almost saying we've got to give up on this idea in a way that we want to take, we've heard this from one of our other guests, that we want to take credit and have some sort of closure for what's happening around us. We want to understand it but we're not going to understand it through the mind. Yes. And so we have to move into the unknown. And I guess that's the bit that I couldn't get for me when I was younger was that the unknown was too big a space. So I wanted it smaller, 
and I wanted it therefore controllable. I could almost be like, if that happens, I'll do that, it's fine. If that happens, I'll do that, it's fine. So I wanted to sort of stick to my boundaries. Yet I also, that inner calling, as you mentioned at the beginning, we spoke about was, was calling out for break free of these walls. And yet I was saying, yeah, I know, no, I will do, but, and just now I want this. And so where does, where does that sit with, with you in your life, the unknown and everything? How's that, what's your relationship with it? And, and are you more devoted to it now? It's a work in progress. <laughs> I would say. So genuinely, I, that sounds flippant. But when I did the work for Accidental Gods, so sit up the hill, ask, what can I do? People like structure, exactly as you said. If we just say to people, just connect with the unknown, it's not going to happen. I, I need somehow to give people, okay, listen to this meditation and do this today. And then tomorrow, do that. And if it takes you six weeks to do it, that's fine. And if you take a gap, that's fine. But at least have s- some sense of structure. But we went through connect connect, 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 find a clear intent, how to hold intent. I think the capacity to hold intent is quite crucial to where we're going. But the final step was let go of everything, including the part that's telling you to let go. And that's very hard, I think, Johnny. I don't know how you find it, but sitting with unknowing and letting go, because I never won World Cups, but I was a vet, you know, it's quite a predictable thing and now I'm a novelist and I try and write novels so I don't know what's happening but there's still a bit of me needs to know a bit of the plot that's coming up <laughs> and so I'm very used to let me map out the path ahead let me at least shine the torchlight a little bit up the road and see where I'm going and finding the vulnerability and the trust in the process to go I really don't need to know I just need to be and all I need to do is keep open the channels to whatever it is that does know and then act from there. But even that requires that I have a belief system and I'm kind of resistant to belief systems because you know, people get quite angry when their belief systems are criticized. But it requires a belief that there is a greater consciousness that knows. You, you spoke to Bernardo Castro and we are... We are nature and evolution, I think. Uh, Is uh. that roughly what he said? We are nature being nature. And so suppose I was able to just sit and connect with what I would call the web of life and and just be me. And perhaps something arises out of that that needs me to do, but more, I just need to be. And people have been saying this for thousands of years and all of the genuinely spiritual practices of the world. It's not a new idea. It's fresh every day and it's hard every day, I guess. It do, I don't think it gets easier. I hope we, if we evolve, emerge from the complexity of the system into a new system, perhaps it'll be that we're all sitting there and it's easier. Because it does seem to me, I don't know what your experience is, but if I sit in a, a room, if I sit with my advanced dreamers or even quite new ones, and we all get into that place of being, it's much mm. easier. There's a resonance that happens the Heart Mind Institute have ideas of why the science that is, but there definitely is an ease. So my hope is that we'll find a critical mass of us who can do this, such that it becomes much easier for everybody else. I, I you know, it's really interesting because what's coming up for me as you're talking about that is patience, and and I see it, I see it in me. You know, if I I, I might speak to a group of people and I'll ask a question, and if no one answers immediately, I start filling the space. 
and trying to almost take away the whatever it is and and even with you know I'm quite very clear with my with my family that especially my daughter if she's kind of taking her time to say something I sit there and I say this is about me now give it all day mm. because beautiful and and it's but geez you can find yourself occasionally going I'm about to finish her sentence for her what am I doing I don't know what she wants to say I don't know what she needs it's like what am I doing and it feels like I spoke to a gentleman called Rupert Spire and he was saying that in some of his retreats and everything he'll get asked the question and he'll say he looks to the now for the inspiration he'll sit quietly and wait for the thread to appear but he says he can be sat there for half an hour Mm. and I said but is there not part of you that's going it's not coming it's not coming why is it not here? Is it ever going to come? But it's like, no, the, the beauty of it is, is to let those thoughts be. And maybe actually those thoughts might be the thread when you see them from that spaciousness to be like, wow, that's interesting. This is what I want to talk about. It's huge to be able to sit and just be with patience and and have that unknown. I mean, you mentioned about that kind of you know enough structure, almost that undercurrent. I feel like for me, speaking about parenting as well at, at the same time as also my own decisions, it's almost like how much of it is, do I need to look after my own security, you know, my own safety, health, and I need to make a living. But then when does that line cross over into the safety of my dreams or the safety of my reputation? And you have to find that line to say, where is this taking away my future and where is it supporting my future and I feel you know especially in parenting you're kind of like hold on all I need to do for me is mostly just make sure that she's safe and that people around my daughter are safe Mm. you mentioned some of the steps that you're talking about because you're talking about these four steps first one being sort of reawakening into connection and you mentioned some elements there you know fire and water and even earth but also you know I guess, into that nature we're talking about who you're being. What, what does that look like? What does that involve? Mostly it involves sitting and being patient, <laughs> to be honest. However, we've tried to give it a bit of a structure. So it arose out of my shamanic work. And in the shamanic work, modern, contemporary shamanic work, not trying to pretend to be something we're not, but wanting to reconnect with whatever it is that I would call the gods of the land. There is something useful, I think, in breaking that down, because otherwise it feels overwhelming for people. It seemed we needed to help modern people who have been raised in lives exactly as you described, where we need to work out how to be safe in a world that we are taught is unsafe. We live in a system that in a way is a deliberate disimagination machine. And I don't know to what extent that has been created deliberately or what extent it's arisen purely by chance, but it's self-perpetuating as a disimagination machine. So how do we help people who still have busy lives to lead? And I, I wanted to set this up. My, my base criterion was I want a working mother with two kids under the age of 10 to be able to do this. <laughs> and then COVID happened and the working mother with two kids under the age of 10 had them at home. It's all very much more challenging. So we connect to the elements. We connect to water, to fire, to earth, to air. Water in the beginning because it's ubiquitously consistent, which is to say it's not like air. If I wanted people to connect with air, it's there all the time. There's no prompts. Whereas water in our world, we get up in the morning, perhaps we stand under the shower. We use the loo. We brush our teeth. We make ourselves a cup of tea. There are instances where water impinges on us. that are not continuous. I'm not asking people to do it all the time. But you can begin, you could stand under the shower and make that a meditation. And for a lot of working people with young kids, 
it's one of the few places where you have time on your own. So let's use that and really connect over the days and the weeks and the months to a sense that water flows. It's there in the oceans. It evaporates up. It becomes the clouds. The clouds move inwards. It rains. The rain runs down the mountains. It forms the rivers. We soften a little bit off. We bring it into our house. It becomes the shower. It goes back down the drain. It goes back into the rivers, back to the oceans. Where am I in my 80% waterness <laughs> in that? And how do I relate to that? And can I create a relationship that feels reciprocal, where the water gives me my life because I couldn't flow without it? It gives me the flow of feeling. It gives me cleanliness. It washes things away. We owe our life to six inches of soil and the fact that it rains. It gives me the capacity to be alive. How can I bring that awareness into every moment of my day? So that every time I walk out of the door and it rains and I look up and I am not doing a rigid thing of, oh, it's raining here, let me recite this. It's a, hey, rain, hello. Like as if I'd met my child, you know, she's come running into the room and you go, hello. And you, you build that relationship is there effortlessly. Can I build that relationship with the rain so that it feels like an old friend? And if it needs me to do something, I'll do it because it's a friend and it asked. And in the same way, the rain is offering itself to me. And then can I do that with fire, with the sun, with the lights, with a candle? And then can I do it the grounding of the earth, the flesh and the bones and the teeth of my physicality, of the stones, of everything that is of earth? Can I really have a sense that I owe my life to six inches of soil? What happens if we turn that soil into a desert and it erodes. What happens if I try and build it and draw back carbon? Could I do that? Even in whatever space there is around me, could I begin to build a relationship with soil? And then last with air, because I listened to you on one of your podcasts recently, we can last a long time without food. We can ask, last two or three days without water. We can last for really quite a long time without the sun, but three minutes without air and, and we're gone. So how do I then build a relationship with the air and the wind? And what does that mean to me? And if I can do that, then when I walk out of the door or even stay inside, I'm not an isolated person. I'm a member of a community of life. There are trees that I can go to and I feel a sense of connection. And it doesn't, for me, certainly feel like it's a projection of my ego. It can do. And I could make it be that and I could go, okay, oak trees mean this. I am going to make the oak tree mean this because I've read stuff about that's what it meant to my ancestors. Or I could sit in the unknowing with the oak tree and see what arises. Wow. We had a guest on called Dr. Mitya Stroni and I was really pushing on this idea for me, this transition that takes place from being in the change room before you're about to take a, go out on the field to a game. And then when the whistle goes, there's a shift in you. And also maybe it's part of that trigger you were asking me about earlier in that I looked and said, I'd have sort of attributed this shift to the change room work led me to the field me. But actually what I suddenly realized was it was happening instantaneously. And it was so not the case that suffering was resulting in joy. And I started to get injured and I looked at almost finishing my career and I, I got to a, a very lucky microcosm version or nutshell version of what life might look like, which is you're going to get to the end of your career and you're going to get asked, was this worth it? And I'm going to look and go, no, it wasn't. 
I'm using six and a half days more of suffering for a few seconds of joy on the field. And I'm actually then saying, geez, I need to put more suffering in to get more joy and I'm getting less. And I'm looking, someone's going to say, have you explored this gift well? And I'm going to have to say no, because I'm no happy. In fact, I'm less happy than I was when I was young. So I've had this time and I've done nothing with it. That shift to me and was starting to make sense. So I started to listen to that one on the field and said, let's look at you for the example. What are you doing? What are you thinking about? I'm not really. Okay, good start. Yeah, let's start there and, and so on and so forth. And, and the physical posture, the looseness, the flow, the kind of energy. But one of the things that was mentioned by Dr. Mithi Stroni was this idea that when you are engaging through that passionate, open-minded and engaged side, you're in a feedback loop with what's really there. And these four elements you're, or these five elements you're talking about, four elements plus the, the, I think it's the ether, isn't it? The fifth, that they're always there. You can always be in a feedback loop with these, which keeps you rooted to the now. Whereas when you're in the changing room, I can't feel the floor. I might as well be floating. I don't even know if I'm stood up or if I'm lying down because I'm so lost in the mind. And my feedback loop is me and my mind having a chat. Whereas what it seems to be you talking about is you're conversing, you're responding and interacting with what's really available here and now. And it roots you to a deeper engagement. Whereas you know, when we have a drink, we're lost in a feedback loop with the mind. What should I be doing? Did I do that right? You know, who should I be? Oh, have I got to make that call? Mm. Have I got time to do this? I'll never do this. This will never work out for me. Oh, but actually, like you said, coming to that feedback loop of this is here now and and those elements are here now. You know, the way I'm sat, I can feel the chair. But, you know, when I get lost in this conversation, I'm like, but at the same time, there's a beauty in that. But with that in mind, where does growing into coherence come into as, as a step two? Is that is that an extension of that kind of engagement? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Good question. So, again, trying to break it down for people, because what you're describing is not not something that can be broken down. If it could, you'd still be in your head breaking it down. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But, but struggling with how can we help people reach this, I'm so in awe of what you're doing with this because you're bringing your own vulnerability. And because most people, and I imagine this comes up a lot in your podcast, are going to look at what you've done and go, wow, pinnacle of career must have been amazing. Everybody who's at the bottom of what is a very steep-sided pyramid wants to get to that point at the top. And what you're going is, guys, it wasn't that much fun for a lot of the time. There were obviously peak moments and the rest of it was really hard. So yes, growing into coherence, I think for me, we're back to that sense of the knife edge. And I have pushback sometimes because people find knife edges to be difficult, sharp and, and potentially wounding. And I think the knife edge is a very exciting place to be because you can only stay in balance on a tightrope or a knife edge if you're utterly present in the moment. I used to climb rocks. And the reason I did it was because it would keep me. You're basically going to fall off if you're not exactly balanced in the moment. And so it has that sense of being on the rock face, connected to the earth, and knowing the physicality of your own body. There's a concept in the teaching that I have of body, mind, heart, mind, head, mind, also spirit, mind. But, but in the beginning, let's deal with body, mind, heart, mind, head, mind. And that they could be like the three horses on the chariot pulling in completely different directions, which is a fast recipe for chariot crash. And <laughs> and wouldn't it be a nice idea if they're all at least in pointing in the same direction? Or when I was in therapy, I just basically let's have them all in the same field. That's a really good start. <laughs> yeah. um, and it doesn't happen often, and there's actually lots more than three. But hey, trying to find that coherence between 
my body mind that's going, I just need some sleep or I just need to eat something that your whole ex-anorexic, over-controlling mind is not telling you is bad. Just let me eat something or you know, I need some exercise or whatever. My body mind has its own awareness. Bring that into alignment with my heart mind, which is for me where, where the connection happens. I read something once of the Dalai Lama got involved with a lot of people who did MRI studies and they were dead keen and they got in people who'd done 10,000 hours of meditation and mostly Tibetan monks because they were working with Dalai Lama and they come in with their EEGs, the electroencephalograms, which are really complex things that you stick on their heads. And the monks are all falling about laughing and the scientists are getting quite touchy about this. You know, why? What's the problem? The monks are like, through the translator is, why are the weird scientists putting stuff on our head when we know that everything that matters happens in our heart? Why? <laughs> and well, we want to measure your brain waves. But once I think, and I'm sure you're aware, once you begin to connect with living, our heart mind is where things happen. And then our head mind is what works things out. If I sit with the tree and the tree suggest something for accidental cause, then my head mind can work out how to make that happen. But the impetus arose from my heart mind. So how do I bring my body mind, my heart mind, and my head mind into alignment? And I think for me, this is something that speaks to your very original question of the boundaries and where we're at in business as usual, because we live in a culture that reifies, deifies our head mind. Head mind is king, queen, top mm. of the hierophant, top of the pyramid, telling us what to do. And anyone who listens to their heart, mind and their body, mind is basically being flaky and idealistic and not real. And yet, if you speak to any indigenous people, then everything arises from heart, mind and our head minds are brilliant. We've created astonishing technology with our head, mind culture. And I feel as we move forward into our conscious evolution that somehow we're going to bring the best of everything. We're going to be able to set our intents through our heart mind. We want a world where everybody is fearless, not because they've switched off their fear and are crushing it down and ignoring it, but because there is no fear. Like in the indigenous cultures where everybody wanted to go back to, we wake up in the morning and we feel that the world and the day ahead is full of extraordinary potential. And yes, it might be hard. And yes, my heart might be broken. And yes, I might fall out of a tree and break my leg. It's not that it's going to be perfect, but the potential is there and I am held in a reality that has no fear. And from there, what can I create? And then my head mind can build the creating and it will have technology in it, definitely. But the impetus comes from my heart-mind connection to the web of life. And so, so for me, if we as a culture... If I as a person can bring that coherence, then I can model that coherence. And with any luck, I think, and this is a head-mind thought, but I can't see a way beyond it. We as a culture come into that coherence before we take ourselves off the edge of the cliff that we're currently sprinting quite fast towards. <laughs> but that's really great because you're talking about this next step of evolution to something we can't even imagine. In other words, it's got to come from the heart-mind. It can't be driven by the head mind because that's what we've done. We're driving evolution through an intellectual logic or deductive logic, which has come already from the culture that's embedded it. And now we're just 
sort of perpetuating it smaller and smaller, I think. And as you said, sprinting now faster and faster. And everything we seem to do has the, in some way, the same formula in it. So it seems like a good idea at the beginning, but it winds tighter straight afterwards. You know, let, let's, let's, the internet, it's amazing. It can make such a difference. Oh no, it's become a bigger problem. You know, like we do this in rugby, you sort of go, geez, the game's getting really, really slow and, and it's getting really sort of stop start. So let's change the rules. And the guys go, yeah, brilliant. And for about six months, everyone plays really fast. And then they start cheating again. And then it's slower and you're like, oh, guys, just stop it. And you're like, we can't, it's our nature. You know, we've got to win. We want to win this evolution. And right. the heart-based right. thing for me, I mentioned my crisis moments. That's where the crisis is for me. I'm in the head. I have mind-based intellectual ideals based around, I guess there were some archetypes in there, savior archetype, warrior archetype, all these sort of things that are saying, this is how life must be. And then life says, but this is how I am. And you say, I can't put the two together. I can't carry on being me in my head and still survive this moment because I have to lose. I have to lose my vulnerability. And the inability to give up in a way and give in and surrender to life was what kept me in the same place. Cause life was saying, well, I'm not actually against you. <laughs> you have to realize I'm not against you. I'm actually for you. So I, I sort of want to go into the next bit, but I've got a feeling it's coming in steps three and four. So I'm going to let you go. So, so step three, asking for help then, where does that sit alongside this? That's exactly what you've just got to though, isn't it? I, I'm locked in warrior archetype and it's an outer warrior archetype, not an inner warrior archetype. And I'm lost. And this requires belief system. And I, I really do get quite difficult with belief system because belief systems have created so much damage over human evolution, or at least certainly our part of it. But it requires the vulnerability. It requires the letting go. It requires the trust in, at the very least, the trust in the process. If You don't have to believe that there is a heart mind of the universe, a, a universal consciousness, a groundswell of compassion throughout the energy of the universe if you don't want to. But my real experience is that at the moment where we do that letting go of accept that I don't have the answers, not only are my answers not working, they're making stuff worse. <laughs> yeah. and, and I could keep trying and trying and trying and trying, or I could just stop and go, okay, I genuinely don't know. And it feels when I do that as if the cage around my heart breaks open. And usually I end up in tears, big, big, belly wrenching, sobbing. But within that is that sense of, I don't have to have the answers. There's a huge relief and release in it's not my responsibility to know where we're going or to know how we're going to get there. And then stage four being that letting go. Yeah, yeah. So the asking for help and the letting go are completely interlinked. You can't let go until you've gone, please, I just don't know what to do. And in that asking for help then comes the letting go, exactly that. Yes. But I think that's, that's so interesting because I've been talking to people in such a state but I've been giving or tr attempting to give this image that's saying, I don't need your help. I don't want to hear anything from you. But deep down, you're saying, I want something. Yeah, and, and that stance is so strong. And it reminds me of the idea that the head then says, okay, 
I need to go out there and find out from books or podcasts, what's compassion? Let me understand compassion. Right, I'm going to go and do me some compassion. <laughs> it's kind of like, but it's all, condi- yeah, I'm going to yeah, buy I'm me some, buy compassion, some but compassion. It's all conditional on the idea of like, I'm doing you some compassion. What am I getting back? There's a hold on. How come I'm not feeling great? Yeah. I'm doing yeah. compassion here. I'm doing love. Yeah, or I'm going to do compassion yeah. and then I'll be fixed. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that fixed. search for the answer, I think into that is, you mentioned that letting go in terms of that, we're all sort of looking at the climate crisis and the different sort of challenges that we're facing, I think, in the world right now. We want to control that evolution. just to, And it's the same formula that says, the same way as me in a, before a game is saying, look, I'll give anything to just be in this game. When I was young, that's what I would have said. But later on, I'm saying, I'll give anything to just go and play this game as long as I come out with my ideas and my reputation and my worth still intact. And now you go, but that's not a big thing to ask, is it? And you're like, yeah, well, now have a look at how the two are feeling. As a kid, it feels beautiful. How does it feel as you now? Terrible. And you're like, that's the difference. That tiny thing of saying, yeah, but I still want this is everything. It's everything that stands in the way. And I'm sort of, I guess, in a way, that vulnerability you mentioned before, the, or the humility of just sort of going, look, I mean, humiliation in that sense has been everything to me. It's everything I'd have run from but now you know I kind of stand there when things aren't going well for me I sort of stand there and go like with your patience and go I think this is meant for me I'm going to try and bathe in this humiliation in some way and just sort of feel that kind of geez you know this is okay like that I guess in a way as we were talking about before I keep trying to to survive this but I need to find out is this part of that I need to look after this survival or is this in the category of I've overstepped the mark survival and by the patience of being in there I'm revealing that so much of it is stuff I can respond to like you said from a resilience creativity standpoint it's huge it's a massive part of me whereas you know I, I stay at some stage in my career I was blocking out 95% of challenges I, I was trying to think my way out of or avoid and you're like well hold on like we said before life's not about survival life I don't think is out to get us 95 percent <laughs> yeah I don't think it's out to get us at all but you know certainly that's the the load I'm thinking that you started off young and you had that sense of I just want to play the game and you didn't have a reputation to lose and then you get to the point where you do have a reputation to lose and now it's I want to play the game as long as my reputation stays intact and now I'm wondering you have that reputation and it can never go away I think, I I wonder, and this is my question, is it seems to me that your reputation as I I have been that person is unassailable and that now you bring what you bring instead, I feel, and this this is feeling in the moment and it may be wrong, this is what I want to test out, is that from that point of strength of no one can ever take that away, it will never be rubbed out, no one is ever going to say I didn't achieve that pinnacle. I now have the freedom to explore a beingness and to share it with people that without that reputation, I couldn't do. It's given you a voice, I think, I suppose. Is that true? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. And I think it sits, that still rankles a bit every now and again when I'm in a certain field where I feel like, you know, I'm in danger here of damaging the old Mm. credibility, which may take away that kind of power to maybe, you know, sneak in doors that would normally be closed, if you know what I mean. And I think 
Yeah, it's it's really powerful. But I think one thing that's changed in me is that I'm humble enough now, I think, to talk as we are now and, and describe it as it really was. But on both sides of the coin, that's not just saying, you know, I was largely struggling for a huge amount of time and that I was in all kinds of difficult places, but I'm also largely able to openly say that was my gift. I was good at what I did. I was very good at what I did. And I'm happy to say that, but there's no sort of inflation of the ego from saying that because I'm not, as we said with Bernardo Castro, I was saying, I'm not taking credit for it. It's not me that was doing it. It was my gift to show. And what I'm realizing now is that, geez, everyone's got stuff they're great at. And I walk around looking at people do certain things and just thinking, you know, whether someone's putting a wall together, I'm like, it's beautiful what you're doing there. In the same way you're thinking, well, so what, you could kick a ball? Yeah, yeah, I could, yeah. But so, so what? This guy can, well, this woman can do this. You're kind of like, yeah, I know. There's no difference. And yet at the time I wouldn't speak about it. I think probably because I thought, you know, that being good made me, you know, in some way, some hierarchy. And now I can't talk about it because it's taboo or whatever. But you realize that it just has no, it's society that tries to load one with value and the other with less and whatever. It's it's so irrelevant when you look at the beauty of that total engagement you're talking about, I think. And then imagine if we could build a society where everybody had that sense of being the best they were. Maybe they build brilliant balls or they grow food in an amazing way or, or they design the internet to be a regenerative thing rather than a destructive thing. So that everybody wakes up in the morning with that sense of this is what I'm good at and I am appreciated for that and I don't need to try to be something I'm not and I can really support other people and, and God, yes, you kick a ball amazingly well. Isn't that astonishing and it's wonderful or you sit in patience amazingly well and you teach people amazingly well and it's okay for everybody to be the best that they can be without it feeling like a head-based best you know I'm ticking boxes but actually I'm just being and I that for me is I think where we're headed for with conscious evolution I don't know what it looks like exactly when we get there but I think and why would we not yeah Whatever our our space on the political spectrum or our stance on all the various tribal things that divide us, I think everybody wants to feel safe and everybody wants to have that sense of dignity, human dignity in what they do. So, so yes, thank you. I just was very curious about that. No, I know. I agree. I think, I think also that looking back at it now, it's also this understanding that it's not a peak. Mm -hmm. It's not a trough. It's a constantly evolving, as you said, shift. And therefore, there is no, I used to be a rugby player. You're like, no, I didn't. I've, I've never used to be anything. I'm, I am just watching this evolution and engaging in this evolution taking place. And everything is always opening something else up. And, you know, like I get to talk on, on these podcasts and the things I always come back to is those things because they're really intense representations, I think, of, you know, we talk about death and life and engagement and, and you're sort of like, geez, you've got all that in just a five-minute mm. spread before you run out and when you start playing, you're like, that's it. I've got enough in there to talk about everything. And you think, geez, this is... Whereas at the time you think it's always about winning a trophy, whereas actually you're kind of like, this could fuel my entire search for... You know, my being. 
with that, that in mind, you've got the website and the podcast and you're building this community. You've got the, the, the teaching. It sounds amazing. I love the concept of a teaching where you're testing almost people's willingness and, and awareness to sort of be like, not in a kind of success fail, but in a case of like, if this is really right, then it will continue mm. to be right and we'll find out. But it's a beautiful way of sort of saying, look, enjoy it up until it's no longer for you. Where, where do you want this to go next? Have you got anything on the horizon that, that would be a big movement? So this year, the big thing that's arisen out of the shamanic work again this last year, I thought I'd stopped writing books. I thought they just weren't fast enough and things weren't going to change. When I wrote the Boudicca books to begin with, I genuinely believed that they were going to change the world, partly because that's what the gods and the guides said. What they did was change my world completely. So I, I sometimes don't listen as sharply as I could. So what's arisen this last year is the understanding that part of the reason that we're locked, frozen, and becoming more and more fearful in the extractive, destructive death cult of, of predatory capitalism is because it is actually easier to imagine the total destruction of all life on Earth than to imagine a different system. And I'm a writer. And why? I spent 20 years writing historical novels. Why was I looking back instead of looking forward? And that came with, with quite a clunk. And so I'm writing, I am trying to write forward. What I realized with, with the novel that I'm writing now is that if I hadn't done the podcast for the last few years, talking to people who are at the leading edge of possibility about what's possible and what they're doing, I would have no clue of how to how do I build a roadmap that takes us from exactly where we are now in the chaos of our current political and economic system forward in a peaceful way. I'm really clear that we need a renaissance, not violent revolution, never works, through to a future where we all wake up, that, that sense of flourishing, where your daughter and your granddaughter and all of the generations yet to come look back at us and say, they left it way too late. And they made some terrible decisions along the way collectively. But my goodness, when it really mattered, they got hold of the wheel of the bus and they turned it away from the edge of the cliff. And we are here in a world that we wake up every morning and it's, it's not perfect because it's way too late to, to take the climate catastrophe back. But we slowed it down enough that their world feels different, that the conscious evolution is evolving to a point where human potential and the potential of, of the whole of the web of life is one of flourishing, not one of lack and restriction. And how do I write that roadmap in a way that if people read the book, they can go, wow, that, that's possible. I can see a way through. And it's a way through to a future that, yeah, I, I could sign up for that. And across the political spectrum, and because, because our divisions are, are really minor, they don't really matter. And they're so recent, 300,000 years of human evolution. And, and I would say our system, I, I think we're in the dying days of the Roman Empire, basically. The whole Roman system is collapsing around us. What if? we were to create something amazing out of it. So can I write that book? And can I help other writers of books and film scripts and Netflix blockbusters and poems and songs and blogs and TikTok videos? Can I seed into them the ideas that will spark 100,000 
of these, because there's not only one way forward, there's not only one map, but I think there are basic ideals of, of exactly what I just said, of where we're heading for, this flourishing future where we wake up in the morning and it feels safe. I think it's amazing, that question. What, what does the world look like in 50 years, 100 years, if everyone had a real sense of worth and belonging? And it's so much easier to go, well, hold on, can I do it the other way? Because I kind of all I have to do there is extend what's happening now and just be like, it's just it's more of this, you know, more intense and this. And, and actually we get quite sort of thinking we're being really creative with that, but we're not. We're grabbing something and just intensifying it and extending it. And I think just as a final point, the human potential... You know, from what you're seeing in yourself, you know, what do you see in 50, 100 years beyond that? Okay, it's difficult to imagine, but what would you like to see, bearing in mind in what you might be seeing in your own environment with some of the shifts that you're experiencing? Wow, this is a whole new podcast. I'll try and be concise. The very short answer is we've already described it. I see a world where humanity has taken its place in the web of life, where we each are fully capable of being present in the moment, Heart open, full-hearted, open-hearted, clear-hearted, strong-hearted. On that crossing point, that very first image that I had of the globe of the earth, with all of those myriad, tiny, tiny filaments of light, the web crossing it, and at each crossing point was a node of consciousness, and some of them were human and a lot of them were not, and we take our place in the moment, fully connected to all consciousness, and we are able to say, here I am as me, I'm not trying to be something I'm not. I'm in my vulnerability, but also in my strength. I am confident. When I do the feeling forward to how does it feel, I, I tend to go 20 years because I want it to still be in my lifetime. Mm. But, but <laughs> I, I want us at least to be on the path, I think, by then. I have a sense of confidence, not the brash, you know, I can stand up on a stage and talk to however many people, not that confidence, but the inner stillness I'm not looking at my shadow. I am balancing light and shadow. I am who I am. And who I am is the right person in the right place at the right time. And with that, balanced on the knife edge of the moment, fully present in the moment, bringing all of myself to the greater consciousness, what is it that you want of me? And just hold that question and be whatever is needed of me. And that all of humanity is capable of doing that. And in that beingness is that sense of that extraordinary, and, and I don't know of another better word than that erotic joy of, of the infinity of all possibility, of all that I could be being expressed in the moment, in the service of the web of life. And, and I have no idea what the world looks like when we can all do that. But I think that is our potential. And wouldn't it be amazing to get there? And isn't it, for me, worth me throwing every part of myself at heading in that direction? We've certainly thrown enough at heading in the other direction. So, you know, whatever it takes, you know, why not? We, why not? Why not? Why not? And, I, and I think when, you, when you're in that more consciously aware state, you can choose what you give your attention to. Yes. And... And must, I think. Where we put our attention is where we put our energy. I think that's one of the choices we can make is where do I choose to put my attention? I, I heard you talk recently about choosing how we feel. And I think there's a kind of head-based, my head chooses how I feel and I want to crush all the bad stuff and only feel joy. 
which is, you know, anyone who tries that for more than five minutes, it's a catastrophe. It just doesn't work. But there's also, I could become aware of the climate, ecological, social, economic, political catastrophe around us and fall into despair and feed the despair in the world and be part of that. Or I could, from my heart space, find that open-hearted, clear-hearted, strong-hearted, full-hearted place of connectedness. And I have a sense, and, and this comes out of one of my shamanic teachers, of let us take for a moment that there is, that the, the groundswell of the heart-mind of the universe is infinite compassion. A raw, wild, astonishing, brilliant, that that joyous compassion that we can meet if we are being fully present and fully ourselves. And that suppose each one of us is like a lens focusing sunlight. And each of us has a slightly different, we have different facets on this lens. We're, we're a crystal, we're or a bit of glass or something that, that can take sunlight and split it into its spectrum colors. And each of us does this slightly differently and that our gift to the world, our beingness, is, is that capacity to be that lens. And so can I open myself fully to the heart-mind of the universe and choose to feel that radiant compassion in the face of existential despair? And then, then I, when I do that, I have a sense of others around the world, and I think not all of them are human, but a lot, most of them are, doing the same. And that is a choice that I can make at every moment of the day. Yeah, I've I've wrestled with myself even recently for that same reason, in that it is the choice to move into a different space and to receive feelings other than to actually choose, like you were saying before about you know, 50 years ahead, what would it look like? And the danger there is you think, oh, it's great, I'll feel great the whole time. It's like, but then go and try that now for two days you'll be like god this is boring <laughs> you know i need something else so it, it is the same thing you know it's the mind saying just go as far as you need to and then leave it again and it is like the mind helping you whatever it can to say you know, as my I, mind does from a place of the heart i think sometimes to say stop relax yeah and let this let and let's see what's here yes and, and yes. i think that choice is into new feelings as opposed to perpetuating the, the old ones yes beautiful Amanda thank you so much that that's been phenomenal I didn't realize I was going to get sort of question and giving me a chance to sort of explore some of my own stuff in that and yeah it's it's been uh, it's been beautiful as you said and, and wow couldn't uh, wish you better for everything that you're doing I couldn't I couldn't be more with you on it if there's a way I can be of service then please let me be it sounds like a phenomenal path and effort and I, I can't wait to to see you know what you can achieve through it and and this shift I think it's going to be amazing but yeah wow thank you so much thank you thank you for the space to be here thank you for engaging in the conversation and you're doing it Johnny you're doing this podcast <laughs> you're using yeah. the reach that you have to reach people who might resonate and that's all that any of us can do it's great thank you so much so that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. And until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson, and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Max Creative, 
The executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. Before I go, I want to say a final thank you to the sponsors of today's podcast, Vitality. For me, the secret to a happy and healthy life is about living consciously. And when we can align those little things we do and decisions we make every day with the life we really want to live, it really makes a difference, which is when the team over at Vitality comes in. Their comprehensive cover enables us all to live a happier, healthier life, whether it's through offering discounts on gym memberships at Virgin Active, Nuffield Health or Pure Gym, or on activity trackers from Garmin, Polar and Samsung. For me, I've been an ambassador with Vitality for several years now, and undoubtedly the feeling of true support when someone cares about you and your health and your quality of life, it makes a massive difference. So you can take the small steps to make the meaningful changes. Head to vitality.co.uk for more information. Terms and conditions apply.